bit, but it is the cult of success. So how easy is it for you to detect? The, the, the reason this can be a monster is because they're not the right person to do the job. And I, I think that's one of the problems with systemic problems is people think you can't solve them. I'm suddenly horrified by the trap I put myself into. You're not allowed to ask me this question now. Welcome to the show that shines a light on the biggest barriers and obstacles that get in the way of getting things done. The things that I like to call monsters and myths because they thrive and survive in the shadows of organizations, specifically because people don't ever talk about them. Today's guest I met uh, as part of a panel that I was moderating earlier on this year. And during uh, the interview and chats that we had at the event, so many things that she said resonated deeply with me. And I thought, I'm going to have to bring her on the show to share her horror stories with us, really. So, Thea. Welcome to the show. Please can you tell our listeners and our audience a little bit about yourself and why it is that you have maybe encountered and hopefully overcome a few of these monsters and myths in your time? Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Really excited to be here. Um, so I'm the head of group optimization at Lloyd's Banking Group. How I got there, though, is probably um, the interesting story about how I've encountered many, many monsters along the way, because before I was at Lloyd's, I was a career consultant. So starting in a boutique consultancy and then moving on to IBM for 10 years. So obviously saw countless clients along the way, um, mostly banks, but also some public sector um, and within lots and lots of different types of transformation from kind of setting up a digital bank to doing a payments engine to working on something post-merger to try and get two organizations to um, become one obviously in their finance processes moving on to kind of specializing in operating models and then looking at kind of fintech strategy i think across the board i um and then obviously having moved across to lloyd's i've seen um, most monsters in most places, um, as well as some things which have gone really right, uh, some things that have gone very wrong. Um, and but I think the it's given me a very broad spectrum from which to draw um, for this show. Absolutely fabulous, and and perhaps I shouldn't start off by mentioning that uh, I was reading a blog just today where somebody. Uh, identified consultants as being a monster and and it actually tagged me in the thing saying another monster for your list so maybe we won't go there right now that you are a reformed monster then in that basis <laughs> in the past you may have been considered a monster by some of the people um that that may be watching or listening in your in your past life in your consultant life i hasten to say so as as is normal with this show, I have absolutely no idea what your monsters and myths are. So I get to hear about it at the same time as everybody else. So let's dive straight in. What's your number one, your first monster or myth that you want to talk about? Um, so I'd like to say in terms of this, like the concept is fantastic. And it has been like kind of rattling around my brain for the number of weeks since we were we set this up 
And I think that the interesting that I've, thing that I've got to with a couple of my monsters and myths is that they are related to each other. And so the fact that there is a monster or, or a myth allows the other one to turn up. So I think that's the that's that a couple of mine have two sides to them. They're like a, a Janus of a, the monster and myth world. But that so my first one is actually the wrong monster. Um, and <laughs> what I mean by that is that organizations are often focused on something or they're trying to change something which isn't actually the monster that is holding them back. So there's quite often, I mean, obviously, operating models and, and the way that organizations work is specialism, but a lot of change times you get something which is a change in organizational design. So it's how we're, how we're set up, which is the problem. And so you get changes to organization, teams moving around, et cetera. Or similarly, you might have a kind of, this leader is a problem, but when the lead, but the leader leaves, not much changes. So I think this is the, the principle of the kind of the wrong monster is actually if you've got systemic shape problems, then fixing one individual part is not actually going to fix your problem. So you need to look at the system as a whole um, and then you need to go from there. So taking something like, like I, I really like, and I, I think that's one of the problems with systemic problems is people think you can't solve them. But actually I think there are quite a few approaches where people have taken to solving them like governance and bureaucracy and everything goes, that's really hard to solve. But, you know, Amazon have their type, type one and type two errors. W. L. Gore have their below the line, above the line that causes you to make governance choices at the right point. And I think that's where people find those more systemic problems um, really hard to solve. But actually, if you faced into them, as opposed to dealt with the kind of the individual way that that's turning up, then you'd have more success at being able to solve the overarching problem. So how easy is it for you to detect when it's the wrong problem that people are focusing on because i think this is one of the the difficult things with monsters and myths and and uh, it's great that you love the concept um what i love about it is it really makes people think what truly is the blocker you know what is the the thing that's getting in the way um so focusing on the wrong thing um, great monster, but how do you how do you go about identifying? Hey, look, no, mm -mm, we are focusing on the wrong thing. How do you identify that monster? I think I think there are a few techniques. I mean, I love like the five whys technique as a way of kind of getting down to the root cause of a problem. But actually, I've come across something that's actually kind of from race action at the moment, which I, I really loved as an approach for dealing with racism, which was around, called the groundwater approach. And it looks at, it talks about where you've got different lakes, basically, and you have, um, let's say a fish has died, that if one fish has died, then you, you can treat the problems that are associated with that fish. If in a lake, a lot of fish have like kind of died, then treat the problems in that lake. But actually, you've got lots of lakes with lots of dead fish, then you need to take a more groundwater approach to the problem. And so I think that's a really interesting way of looking at problems is how often are they turning up? In what scenarios? If they're everywhere in a, diff a slightly different guise or a similar problem, then you've probably got a systemic problem. If they're in an individual area, then you can probably take a local approach to dealing with it. So I thought that was a really interesting way of thinking about it, to know whether your problem is local or more systemic. 
that that is and i i hadn't thought about it in that way um but what what it does resonate in terms of a technique is i often use clustering so i will uh, run workshops with multiple groups of people and when the same themes arise across all of the groups of people and we cluster those together then management can't say oh it's that area and it's that area if the same themes are repeatedly coming up so it's really really it, it's similar so have you got any suggestions on so you can you can identify it you can find out how do you solve it have you got thoughts on that have you seen that done well how you how you solve systemic yeah. Problems. Yeah, what's the <laughs> magic required? Because the whole, you know, this is monsters, myths, and magic. Hopefully, you've got an idea on the magic required to dispel the monster. So, so I think it obviously depends on what the nature of the actual problem is. But, for example, let's take you've got a problem with leadership, and you think it's an individual leader, but then you realize that it's actually more of a systemic cause. Then you've got to look at like, how how were those people selected? Is there something in the way that you are selecting them which is causing them? Or is there something in the way that they're incentivized which is causing, you know, great leaders to act in not great ways? And I think that's where you're looking at systemic aspects to the problem as opposed to going, we've got the wrong leaders or um, we, you know, need to solve it through the pe a people problem. So I think that's, uh, you look at, the system around them to try and bring out the best in a person as opposed to necessarily looking at people individually or looking at the systems that created them in order to you know make sure you get to the, the best leaders to solve the best the problem that you've got systems thinking i love it as a futurist you're talking my language there you know <laughs> everything affects everything else uh just talking about leadership there was a keynote speaker at an event that I went to recently um, uh, and he was from a large bank and he took over as the CEO and within a very short space of time he fired an entire middle layer of management in the organization hundreds of people it sent shockwaves through the entire organization but he had identified that this particular layer was uh, the blocker. They were the biggest inhibitor to any change because nothing could get past them. Um, so he just fired them, the whole lot of them. Radical, absolutely never heard of anything like that. And the audience actually gasped when he, you know, and he went, I stand by my choice. I just, blanket decision, got rid of them all. It is one way of solving a systemic problem because then, of course, it sent a message through everybody either side of that layer that, you know, you have to start making things move. And he said, you know, things started happening immediately. Uh, innovation started happening, change and transformation. The blockers just fell away after that. So there are radical approaches that, that can also be taken. Great start. So tell me what is the next one what's your number two on the list monsters or myths um so i think the i, I might link it to the first one which because i think there's a, an interesting link together which is the person with the right job title um so the the, the reason this can be a monster 
is because they're not the right person to do the job. <laughs> and I think this is a really interesting one because it's often that, let's say something needs to happen. You give it to the person who's the most obvious person to do that um, that particular task because they have the, the job of the head of compliance and this is a compliance problem or, or, sim or similar. And I think where that can go awry is where that person can't reasonably have the skill set that is required to do the actual task that they are being handed. So they're brilliant at doing one job, but not the job that you're asking them to do. And I think this is where there's a really interesting, I'm sure you've come across it, but Simon Wardley had this idea of like pioneers, settlers and town planners about how you're doing innovation. And the pioneers go out and they they come up with the crazy ideas and they're out there in the wild and they're you know, coming up with they're the innovators and then the settlers will kind of make it so and they'll take it from MVP to being a product and then the town planners are the ones who can scale it and then they can run the towns right but you're not gonna if you are trying to take you know a, a business area and you're trying to you know move it from a, a period where it has been steady to one of growth you probably aren't going to do that best with a town planner. You're going to do that better with a pioneer. And that's where I think people are chosen because of particular skill sets or that they have are really experienced in a particular area rather than necessarily they fit the task that is ahead of them. Um, and that, I think, is what is quite interesting about trying to better fit. And I think this is, if you think about the future of work, something that we can get better at, which is, fitting rather than being very kind of pigeonholed into a particular role and I think we've got worse about it recently in terms of like you are a product owner and you are um, an engineering lead and or and you do um, full stack and you do you're allowed to do this and you're allowed to do that and I think it's um, become a bit more pigeonholed whereas actually there's a lot of ways that you can move around that it's much more about your approach to it and that you know, you shouldn't give a pioneer a town planner job and, and equally you shouldn't give someone who can do a very brilliant run system. You shouldn't give them something to start something new because they're just not going to be particularly good at it. But it quite often happens that the person who has the job title gets the, the you know, the the task, the thing to do. Whereas, the, and I think you, because you're going to ask me about some magic. <laughs> well, before before we get on to the magic, I just have to say that one of the things that um, frustrates me in an innovation role and has frustrated me many times over in when I used to work in corporate days was that the job of innovation um, was highly prized title. People saw it as, you know, head of innovation or so you get to play with all the cool stuff and and often. Um, the title was awarded to people because of uh, maybe their seniority or a bit of uh, internal politics that somebody maneuvered themselves. But they were the worst possible people to have. They were uninspired. They were uninspiring. Um, they had no, you know, foresight or anything like. They didn't have the tool sets, but they were now gifted this title of head of innovation, and and companies just wither because of that. That's just poor appointment in the first place. Um, but before we get on to the magic as well, um, why do you think it is that people that 
get receive a task because of their job title, but that they are ill-equipped to handle. Why is it, do you think, that there is so much reluctance for them to say, that's not me? You know, is is there just the stigma attached in a in a corporate environment that if you say no, that people will think you're incompetent or you can't do the job, as opposed to you reframing it and saying, no, that's not what I'm good at, because I I know the stuff that I'm not good at. And and in the past, maybe it's just because I'm old and cranky. But when I was given a task that I was ill-equipped to do, either because of my personality, my nature, my attention span, whatever it was, I would simply turn around and say, that's that's not going to go well if you give me that task. And I can tell you that up front, and I'm telling you now, I can probably suggest somebody much better for it. And it's not because I don't want to do work. It's because I know what I'm not good at. And people respected that, but it's not a behavior that I've seen very often. What, what, what do you think is the reason that those people with the, the, the right job title, but the wrong skills, why don't they push back? So, so I think there are probably a number of facets around it where you don't want to say no to your boss and your boss has decided that you should be doing, that this is part of your role and you should do it. There's a kind of people pleasing element where you want to be able to say yes. I suspect you're worried, as you said, that you'll be seen, it'll be seen as you are being generally incompetent if you feel that you can't do this, but your job and that they will find someone else who is, you know, the complete package who can do all these things and you're just being, being awkward about it. And I think the nature of hierarchy makes it harder for you to just pull someone in who might be really good at that job from elsewhere or if, and or to swap people out without it being seen as some kind of failure or that you have decided cross. So I think that's the that's the nature of why it is harder. You can't just pull someone in who is equally senior than you. Terrible, terribly expensive. Um, and even if that's the right choice to make at the time. So I think there's yeah. about... Because it is, you know, you, you're talking about hierarchy and seniority, and and this is where I think organizational structures are just so broken. You know, these self-forming organizations and sort of cooperative organizations, which you must be familiar with coming from your consulting background, where the best people with the best skills for the job were the ones that did it, and to hell with job titles, you know, you were all an equally high or equally low job title, but but basically teams are assembled dynamically to be able to get stuff done. But corporate world, particularly in financial services and banking, it's all politics and hierarchy. So I'm going to ask you now what the magic is, because otherwise I'll carry on banging on about... I, I, I I'm going to challenge the other way though and I, I'm a great I'm, a, I'm playing devil's advocate because I, I love some of the approaches to kind of the teal organizations that you're referring to but they haven't tended to work at kind of significant scale or take on something and they tend to like quite a lot of them have collapsed into, into yep. bureaucracy exactly the thing that you're not trying to create as you get to greater numbers and actually hierarchy is an incredibly strong way of maintaining um a very vast or a very large organization so it, i think it has and 
you see it in the animal world that things tend to kind of return to it ultimately. So I think there's a, almost a strangely natural state around hierarchy, but that doesn't mean that it has to be totally inflexible. <laughs> and I think there's there's bits you can learn from each side in order to say, like, how do we flexibly form teams? Even if even if we want them to be hierarchical, how do we meet, make it easier to create a virtual team amongst people to go off and do a piece of work for a bit with, and make it easy to form the team that solves the problem and then they return, but don't create a massive program around it and need all the bureaucracy that comes with that. And that they can kind of join a squad and then they can disperse and they, they don't lose their original job. I think there are approaches if you if you'll meet but you need to do it meaningfully and that's where i think the um it comes back to that systemic piece where if it's a systemic problem like breaking up a hierarchy or making it more fluid it becomes a harder problem to solve individually in any area and, and it is it, it is as you said is systemic because a lot of the hierarchies are also linked to reward and remuneration packages and bonuses and targets and things like that. So, you know, um, yes, I've got the best person for the job on my team, but I'm sure as hell not going to give that person to you to be able to achieve your objective because I need that person in my team to achieve my objective. Otherwise, I'm not going to get my bonus. And yeah, that's hoarding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Magic. Magic. You didn't discuss magic. It's um, a magic. The magic lies in the ability to have flexibility, appropriate flexibility when required, which is a really, really tough one. Have you ever achieved that within a corporate structure? Uh, I mean, you, you know what? There, there's actually one thing that I was incredibly proud of in a situation where that we're an organized where, you know, Actually, it was at, at Lloyd's where we needed to deliver something very close to Christmas. So you can imagine how much fun that was. And um, it needed basically everyone to come together. And in that scenario, and a lot of people to down tools on something, to pick something else up to make sure that we got that thing in the line. And actually, in that kind of scenario where you've got a particular target and everyone can see that that is the most important thing to do, and... Um, you just saw an amazing, and I, it's it's very collaborative. So you saw an amazing amount of people just doing their own self-sacrifice to say, I will go up through my line to make sure that this gets the right resources and they get moved across. Um, you don't need to do it. Let me take it. I will go and do it. And that amazing kind of pulling together of um, people around a problem. So I think, I mean, focus is an amazing so if everyone wants to do something, then you can really pull an organisation together to do it. And suddenly flexibility is OK. You, you saw it with, you know, the response to COVID in terms of what got delivered so quickly because everything was galvanised around it and you knew you had to respond. And it was so incredibly important because, you um, you know, you have to respond for our colleagues, for our clients, for our customers in a way that, you know, <laughs> the normal ways of working we're not going to work for so again everyone piled in got focused got it done um and it was an incredible it's incredible to see it when you do get that flexibility happening in an organization so that's why i think we should just have it as a you know BAU. But... <laughs> it, it, you're right there we know it can be done and then post-covid things have started going back to the old ways kind of a thing um 
And I had a lot of hope that post-COVID people would have uh, changed their ways significantly enough because, you know, it takes a while for behaviors to change and, and COVID stuck around for quite a while. Um, but I see old behaviors creeping back in again. But I live in hope. I live in hope that the magic will work and that we can have more flexible organizations and approaches to me it. Me too, me too. <laughs> so let's let's get on to your last one. What's number three on your list? Okay, so this one, again, I think has two sides to it, but it is the cult of success. <laughs> um, yes! So, <laughs> so what this is about is, and, and I, I do, you know, a reasonable amount of recruitment. I look at number CVs. We talk, like I mentor a lot of people. It's all about how do you present yourself? And we're all doing our lovely kind of star approaches. We're taking our situation, our tasks. We've got our actions. We've delivered our results. And and we, if you read everyone's CVs, the world would be an amazing place because of the amount of success we have all achieved in all our different places. And if you look at that collective success, oh my gosh, the world must be amazing. Um, however, <laughs> in reality, there are two sides to that which I think are are monstrous so one side of it which is quite often you are it it, it may look very impressive actually three sides but it may look very impressive but what how you contributed that was probably a lot more random than it looks in a, a particular cv so it might have been someone else's idea that caused that to be amazingly successful or you're lucky or you're unlucky as to whether you're successful or not and that's what drives it i think another part of that is Actually, where do we do our most learning? It's in our failures. <laughs> in reality, we become more better people, like much better people, more from our failures than our successes, in my view. We learn a huge amount about ourselves, what we can do, what we can't do, what we should do, we, like the retrospection that goes into uh, how you think about it, even if you have like a micro failure, right, it is a lot and you learn a lot from it. You learn less from your successes. And so I think actually, in a weird way, a, a a true CV that was peppered with successes and failures would be more would tell you more about what someone really could do. And then the third part of it is that I think it creates this. Uh, and I was looking up the the statistics that were referring to like the number of CEOs who were psychopaths, um, which there was a <laughs> a Babiak and Hare um, study on it that it was around four percent versus one percent in the general population. And I think that the cult of success that inspires people to, like, for those people who are particularly jazz hands, who are performative rather than in, interested in performance, to actually rise higher, because they're the ones who will say that they've always been successful, that everything has been amazing. And they'll do so without any compunction, without anything else, because you know, that's their personality style. And I think it doesn't necessarily bring to the top the the best leaders. Um, and so that's why I went for the cult of success. That is, I was, I was trying to, while you were talking, I was trying to find, I've got a quote somewhere that says exactly that. We learn little from our success and we learn from our failure. It's something along those lines. Couldn't find the quote. Might have to put it in the show notes. Um, but it, it is so true and I think it is, it's got a lot worse in recent years because of social media, because, you know, the Instagram lifestyle, you know, 
everybody just puts their you know their best self forward kind of a thing and it becomes over amplified and it's that sort of reinforcement loop everybody wants a pat on the back and everybody wants you know to 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 be told how great they're doing and they want to show everybody how great they're doing and yeah i look at people's linkedin profiles and i go really you delivered that by yourself huh um and and i look at some of the things and you know i you know successful experienced entrepreneur who's only been out of university two years and has only had one job um and 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 they list all of these launched this made this you know disrupted that and i'm thinking uh-huh in two years in a financial services institution uh, you'd be lucky if you got a, a decision in that amount of time, let alone, you know, we know what decision making is like. That's also one of our monsters and myths that we talk about. Um, so that one's easy to spot. So uh, spotting the cult of success and the problems around it, um, easy. Harder question. What's the magic? How do we how do we dispel this? How do we turn it down a notch? How do we make it real? Do we, is it linked to, I, I don't want to go the American style of celebrating our failures. No, I don't think we need to crack a champagne bottle every time, but the retrospectives and things like that, I think are a really good start. Because I think that there's a, there's a huge fear of failure particularly in corporate you know people think well if i fail i'm not going to get a promotion or something like that and i think we need to normalize failure as part of the learning process as you said what's your thoughts on how do we how do we get rid of this how do we make people not feel that they have to you know push this amazingly successful person first would you hire the people that that didn't have all of that in their cvs by the way so, so I, I, it's really interesting from a CV point of view, right? Because uh, I, I was horrified by suddenly horrified by the trap I'd put myself into. You're not allowed to ask me this question now. Where you would suddenly ask me, so like, tell me about your greatest failure in the last year or in the last ten years, and that'd be horrifying. So, I think there's there's an aspect of it which is about that that. There is a natural thing while you're trying to put yourself forward for something that you want to present yourself as your best self, you know, fear on the most amazing day. Um, but I think there's another part of this, which is maybe less about standing up in front of a crowd and saying where I had failed, but more about documenting lessons learned from group collective um, pieces in a more honest um, and transparent way to tell the next generation or the next person who does that kind of thing, what you screwed up, what you did well, what you do again, how you would have done things differently. Why you think, was it really a, a failure in what you were doing or was it a failure in how it was set up? Was it the salesperson who missold it in the first place, which meant it could never be successful? Um, how, did you just have the wrong constraints around you that meant that so was it a true test of whether that could have succeeded is there a, what were the reasons why it was like was it misestimated at the front maybe you should be working on stopping people from misestimating things rather than going rather than kind of 
bashing the people who then didn't get it delivered. If it was always um, kind of misestimated at the front, you had no chance, not real a real chance of getting it through. And I think if you could have those honest conversations, document it, and then those were more available. So you could say that the next type of thing, if you're setting up that has these characteristics, here are all the lessons learned that people have done. They're anonymized. You don't know exactly who did what, but you can learn from that and then take that forward into the next time because history repeats itself <laughs> all the time and yet we don't and this is true for the the world as much as the country as much as an organization we don't learn enough from history and i think if we thought about it collectively and how we work together and actually how that creates our successes and how that creates our failures we'd get kind of further forward than this more individualistic cult of success approach and I, I love the idea of um, documenting that and passing it on for future generations of whether it's product owners, product managers, change managers, innovators, disruptors, whoever it is. It's almost like a like a handbook of um, here's the legacy of those who went before you kind of a thing. And I'd, I'd shown you um, these little cards that I'm, I'm taking the monsters and myths and turning them into these little cards. Um, one of my clients has actually made their own pack and is using them as an as part of the onboarding pack for new project managers. Specifically for that reason, they are saying, here be monsters. These are the archetype people and common behaviors you will find in this organization. They've identified the systemic issues that they can't fix um, or aren't willing to try and bat that one at the moment, but they're warning their their change managers and their their innovation people. This is what you're likely to encounter in this organization. And here's our cheat sheet, a uh, couple of notes for you on how to go about solving it. I mean, the one the one that I'm holding up there is the silver bullet myth, which um. I'm sure that you've come across the silver bullet myth when uh, a senior executive comes back from some event and they've been wound and done and taken to golf or, uh, you know, something like that. And they come back and they say, this is the product that we need to buy. It will solve all of the problems, you know, silver bullet I, or, or everything that you've been complaining about. You've just got to buy this and, you know, we can get this really good deal and just get it and implement it and, and all of those problems off your sheet. I'm making your life so much easier. And then it's up to you to t show them in a tactful way how um, actually they've had smoke blown up their rear end or something like that. But it's that kind of a thing. So I do love your um, your approach there of documenting it, putting it together and almost having it as a as a pack to go on. And the other thing, that I, the one add that I do to that is allow different perspectives on what went wrong. Because I think different people have a very different view on what happened in any situation. And actually, all of them are quite interesting. I think another thing with lessons learned, so you can summarise them up and you can put them into themes. But I think that loses some of the richness or necessarily an un the, the leader may not have the most accurate view of what went wrong versus, I know, a BA that was sitting in a feature team who just had a, a very broad perspective and so actually saw more. So actually some more of those voices that are in those lessons learned rather than trying to summarize it too much so that people can dig into it a bit more and really hear the the stories that came from it. Because that's what, you know, we tell stories in order to 
um, you know, have a, a better way through the world. And I think we should tell stories of our failures as well as our successes, or actually the mixture of both that tends to be everyday life, right? Because even with your greatest success, there are parts of it where things didn't go brilliantly. So I think it's the full story of how you got somewhere tends to be littered with a, a few failures along the way. Now, there's a there's a job title that I've never seen inside an organization, the person to document and chronicle the stories that come out of there. You know, I think there's a there's a new vocation there for somebody. I'd love to uh, um, give that one a bash at someday. Thea, thank you very much for your time and for sharing the stories of your monsters and myths. We've come up against time. Um, so I've got nothing more to say other than I wish you well, monster hunting. And thank you once again for sharing with everybody. Thank you very much. It was wonderful to be here.